In Revelation 22:13, Jesus said that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He was the Word in the beginning, and he is the risen King of glory in the end. Join us on our year-long journey as we see how Jesus was present in every book of the Bible. This is Alpha and Omega. Maybe you're going to play a game that you've never played before, or you're making up a game, or it's just life, and, and, and somebody steps up and says, whoa, 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 whoa. let's set some, some, some ground rules. What, what that means is, is not everybody is on the same page, not everybody has the same knowledge of, of what's about to take place, and somebody's leading that thing, and they want to make sure that we're all on the same page, that the standard is the same for everyone, that the goal is set, and it's visible to everyone that's going to be participating in whatever you're participating in. So it's not necessarily wrong to set the ground rules. Now, Greg last Wednesday night kicked off Alpha and Omega in the book of Genesis. He, he set some ground rules there with what we're looking at for the year 2024 in finding Jesus in every book of the Bible, but primarily finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Because so many times we think of Jesus as a gospel character, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel records, as that character and that character only. We don't see Jesus from Genesis to Revelation as much as we do in the Gospels. So we want to make sure that we take that blurry line and make it very clear and remind us all to say that Jesus is the creator God from the beginning, right? Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created. Who is God? I think Greg did a very good job last week in describing to us who Elohim is is and how that term that hebrew word helps clarify for us this god who is three persons in one who is self-existent eternal has no beginning will have no end and that includes the person of jesus now we know that god represented himself in the flesh and so there had to be the birth of the Son of God, God walking on this planet, to be the ultimate sacrifice for all of our sin. It took a human sacrifice, but it would have been incomplete if it was merely a human sacrifice. It had to be both human and God to be the sacrifice. But that doesn't mean that Jesus has not always been. And so what we're doing this year in 2024 is making sure we're all on the same page. We're setting the ground rules that this Savior that we call Jesus has always been. He who was, is, and is to come, he will always be. There's never been a time to where he did not exist. And so that brings a lot of comfort to us. And so we've, we've got to strongly establish some perimeters as we continue this study on Alpha and Omega, Jesus is the first and the last. And the reason is because of what this truth implies. So I want to share with you before we get into the verses at least three truths 
that this will imply. And this is going to be good. There is no expiration date on it. This is going to carry us all the way to the last Wednesday night in December with these three truths. How many of you guys, just from my own personal knowledge, are note takers, by the way? How many of you guys are like Fort Knox, baby? Okay, good deal. So those of you who take notes, share it with the ones who's got Fort Knox, okay? So truth number one is that if Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, he's always existed, then this separates Jesus from all other views that all other religions have about Jesus. Because no matter what religion it is, now real quick, just kind of, this is nerdy, this is classroom setting kind of stuff to begin with, so please forgive me, but sometimes we misunderstand the difference between what a religion is, what a denomination is, and what a S-E-C-T-S sect inside of a denomination is. So a religion has a totally separate God. They have a totally separate system of behavior. They have a totally separate religious writing in which they adhere everybody in that religion to. So you, you've got Muslims and you've got Buddhists and you've got Hindus and you, there's a whole lot of different religions out there. Those, aside from Christianity, are probably the, the most well-known and the larger ones that are out there. But even inside of those religions, there's denominations. There's different kinds of Christians. There's Pentecostal, there's Baptist, there's Presbyterians, there's Methodists, and there's a lot of different kinds of Christians. The same is true for Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and just about all others. Inside of those categories are more defined categories. And all of it has happened because of systems of belief. Now, so what we've got to think is, okay, who is the person of Jesus? As a matter of fact, John, when he's writing the first letter of 1 John, in chapter four, he teaches us to try the spirits to see whether they're of God. In other words, we are testing the principles and life causes of other people, in particular teachers, to see what their view of God is. And so the litmus test, if I can use that term, is that Jesus must be, according to John, the Son of God. Okay? <laughs> and again, I know I'm getting like super nerdy here real quick. Forgive me. We're fixing to get into some other things that might be a little bit streamlined preaching, but Muslims view Jesus differently than the Bible and Christianities. They see Jesus as a prophet and a good man. Buddhists see Jesus as a wise teacher and a wise man. Hindus believe that Jesus is a, real important, a, not the, but a little g, God. And he's thrown in the mix with hundreds of thousands of other plural gods. This is a problem for us as Christians. 
because we see Jesus as the part of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, three co-equally existing for all eternity past and future. Not in um, contradiction to one another, not in competition to one another, but all as one. It's mind-blowing and very mind-boggling, but these other religions have this different view of Jesus. But if we see Jesus in the Old Testament and we do what that tells us is, get this, Jesus precedes his own existence. <laughs> if, I mean, just kind of playing this thing out in our mind. So that's truth one. Truth two is this makes Jesus a whole lot more supernatural than what we realize. Because this is what we get from the Gospels. Jesus is born of a virgin. What? Over 300 prophecies about Jesus throughout his life. One of the first ones is he was going to be born. I'm going to use my words real careful, so you need to put on your big boy ears, big girl ears, okay? Mary was pure sexually. And God overshadowed her with his Holy Spirit. And she miraculously conceived. And, and to keep things rated G, Jesus is in her womb and he is born. That's a miraculous thing. Jesus confounds the, 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 the teachers of the law when he's 12. Jesus walks on the water. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus defeats the temptations of the devil coming out of the wilderness, fasting 40 days and 40 nights. I mean face to face with the devil. This is the thing. You've probably never been face to face with the devil, if we're all honest about it. We've been face to face with temptation and our flesh and sin and self. We might have even been face to face with some demonic activity. But if we're all honest, ain't none of us that important to have the devil. Job was. And Jesus was. And Jesus was confronted by Satan and he defeated Satan. And you think about all the miraculous things that Jesus did in calming the storm and multiplying the loaves and fish. But it pales into comparison of his beyond the natural, the supernatural truth that he existed before he was born. It's absolutely amazing. The third truth is this. This is the defining point of Jesus's, here's a big churchy word, Bible word, deity. Just means that God, that's what deity means. He is God, okay? <laughs> I mean, this is the exclamation point when you see Jesus. Now, last week we talked about in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, 1, verse 26, and we talked about Jesus is, is the one to whom we reflect his image because we bear his image in us. We're going to go through... I mean, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges and you're, you're going to get to see. We're, we're, tonight, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that, that's going to be a little bit misty 
But we're going to see times in, where Jesus is the fourth man in the fire, and he is the captain of the Lord's host before Joshua, and it is literally, he is there. And it's not a metaphor or a symbol or a typology in Christology. It's, it's so oh, this, this is going to be one of the best series that's ever happened on the planet. Whether or not, whether or not it's preached good, it's going to be good, okay? And so this definitely points out the deity of Jesus. I get this question so many times. People ask me, Andy, is Jesus God? And I say, absolutely, Jesus is God. Jesus has to be God in flesh. And they say, where did Jesus say he was God? I, I can, y'all probably know I can be pretty smart. I like, I try not to be but I cannot deny one of my spiritual gifts. And so sometimes I'll just say it's from Genesis to Revelation. There it is. But because he, he is a part of the triune Godhead, when the Spirit of God inspired 40 men to write 66 books in three different languages on three different continents over 1,500 years, and that's how the Bible was formed, then he is active in that. If he was active in creation, you learned that last week, then he's obviously active in the pinning of this word. And, but, but I know what people mean when they say that. They mean, but Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, did he ever say that he is God in flesh? Absolutely. In John chapter 14, Jesus is with his disciples and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You remember the story. He just told them about the gospel. He's going to die and be buried and raised the third day and their hearts are sinking. And, and then uh, Philip says, says, show us the Father, using the King James language, and it sufficeth. It's going to satisfy us. Verse 14, or verse uh, 8 and 9 in chapter 14 of John. It's going to, like Jesus, I can just imagine Bro, like I'm here to please you, you know? Show us the Father and it will please us. It'll satisfy what, what our questions are. And Jesus, how does he respond? He doesn't say, well, the, the, the Father's the one I'm fixing to pray to in chapter 17. He's, he's the one that I'm gonna have a conversation with on the cross when I say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's, he's the one that I do his will at all times, never forsaking his will. He's the one that when I speak, I speak on his authority. He could have said all those things, but he chose to in that intimate moment. Judas is gone, 11 are there, those disciples whom he will soon send out as apostles. He looks at them dead in the pupil of their eye in my opinion I wasn't there but man I hope it was <laughs> and he says how long have I been with you and you've not known me if you have seen the father you have seen me it's more than somebody looking at my aging face and saying man you look more and more like your daddy it's more than that <laughs> it's a whole lot more than that so this, this points out the fact as the third truth that Jesus is God. There's no way that Jesus is not God in the flesh if we see him existing before his birth. And so, so we're just going to continue. That's your parameters as we think through Jesus in each book of the Bible, Old Testament in particular. Tonight we're going to look in Exodus chapter 12. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We're going to talk about Jesus, our sacrifice, our Passover lamb. 
And I'm just going to read the verse, and then we'll kind of get back into the story of what all is happening here. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are, and you shall see the blood, and I will pass over you. That's where we get the holiday phrase, the Passover, the Passover meal. Um, I'll pass over you. And the plague, don't let that trip you up. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. Shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So what's happening here? You were in Genesis chapter 1 last Sunday. We have, we have a big leap to take. Just to say this, there's only so many weeks in the year, and this is an annual study. We could have found Jesus in a whole lot of other chapters, um, one of which could have been Jacob wrestling with God. That's in the book of Genesis. A lot of chapters in Genesis we could have tackled, but we're just trying to progress through this pretty quickly. What happens at the end of the book of Genesis is Joseph has been sold into slavery. He is now, um, by God's graces and positioning, God is moving things like chess pieces on a chessboard, checkmating the enemy Satan on our behalf. And he puts Joseph as the second man in charge right under Pharaoh. And so, uh, Canaan land, all the land around was in a big famine. And, and, and Joseph's family comes to Egypt looking for food, figure out this is our brother who we sold into slavery. Uh Oh, we're in a mess. And God used Joseph and helped him realize in that moment that that all of my suffering has been for this moment. I'm not going to speed past that, okay? All of your suffering may be for a moment that has not yet come. The fact of the matter is we're going to suffer. We're going to have heartache. We're going to have trouble in life. There's going to be issues that we deal with. And in the middle of that hot issue, that, that troublesome time, we think, why is this happening? And it's okay to ask, why is this happening? But know this on the backside of that question. You say, why is this happening? Also say, but I know that God is working. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. What you meant for evil, God meant for good and for to save much people. And so Joseph was used to bring the nation of Israel, almost quite literally Jacob and his sons, whose name is now Israel, into Egypt. And for 400 years, they live. Pharaohs live and die. And one is raised up who does not know Israel or his sons who are growing the Hebrew people into a big population. And it is threatening to Pharaoh. And so he enslaves them, and he puts burden after burden on them. But God hears the cries of the Hebrew people in Exodus chapter 1 and 2, and he sends a rescuer. See, we could have done a typology with Moses because Moses was born, and even in his birth, threatened to die like Herod did coming after Jesus hearing of a king to come. Moses could, it could have been, or is that, that, that type of Christ as well. But, but Moses is born and 
Moses grows, and you know the story of Moses. His life is basically broken down into three 40-year sections. The first 40 years, he's living in Pharaoh's palace. He's caught between two cultures. He's a Hebrew. He's not an Egyptian. And he sees the abuse of, of an Egyptian taskmaster over a Hebrew. He kills the Egyptian taskmaster, buries him in the sand. Next day, sees two Hebrews. That's his people. He says, you guys don't need to keep fighting against one another. You, you should be loving one another. And one busts him out, and he says, ha, ha. We know you're a murderer. You're going to kill us like you killed him. And so first 40 year closes and he hightails to the land of the Midianites to where he meets this lady named Zipporah. And when he saw her, he fell in love. She knocked his socks off. And so he got to meet Jethro, who is the priest of the Midianites and his father-in-law, and he began to watch his sheep for 40 years in the burning bush. Man, I'm going through this real quick, I know. But the burning bush, God calls Moses, concludes the next 40 years. So there's two 40 years. How old is Moses when he got his calling? 80. Say it with me. It means you're not too old. On the backside of that, most of the disciples were between 17 and 22. You're not too young. We're the only ones that put perimeters around God's calling. God can define that. God can handle that. So he goes back, and this is, this is really where the story picks up. He goes back with a commission from God to say to Pharaoh, with the help of his brother Aaron, let my people go. Man, it's a, it's a great story, and, and I know that I've, I've just really run through it real quick, but it's here to where God goes to Pharaoh it hadn't been that long. There's still some knowledge of Moses with Pharaoh in the Pharaoh's house. And he says, God sent me here, the great I am, to tell you to let his people go into the wilderness and worship. Let him go. Pharaoh is a, is a king. That's what Pharaoh means. It's not his name, it's position. Not just is he in this position, but he has pride because they were the superpower of the known world. It's very much like the United States of America and a president. He has this pride, and, and who are you to come and tell me you're a, you're a foreigner, you're a sown seed that's a, weed, uh, that's a tear, not a weed. You can't come in here and tell us how to do our thing. God says, let my people go. No, you guys know the story. It goes back and forth, back and forth. And God begins to send plagues. This is where we see in that verse, shall pass over you and the plague, it's talking about a specific plague, it's not talking about plagues in general. There are 10 different plagues. If you're a note taker, get ready. The first was the plague of blood that the waters would turn to blood. That's chapter seven, verse 20 through 28. You can write down blood, 7, 20 through 28. The next, the plague of frogs. Some of y'all would like that. Chapter 8, verse 1 through 7, because you're weird. Third, the plague of lice. Nobody likes that. Chapter 8, verse 16 through 19. The plague of flies. It happens every July at my house. Chapter 8, verse 20 through 24. The plague of the livestock dying. Chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. The plague of bulls to where their skin would have these bulls and it'd be extremely painful, kind of like elephantitis is what they thought Job had. And he sat in the ash heap and he scraped his bulls with the crushed pottery. Chapter 9, verse 8 through 12. The plague of hail. 
chapter 9, verse 22 through 26. That's H-A-I-L. The plague of locusts, chapter 10, verse 12 through 20. This is number nine. Plague of darkness, 10, 21 through 26. Not darkness as the lights are off and I can see the street light beaming through my curtains, but absolute outer darkness kind of darkness. Now stop at nine because something happened between nine and 10. I mean, it is like God is shooting down rockets. I'm talking about all of judgment is coming. And Moses comes before Pharaoh. God says, let my people go. No. And in his heart, he hardens his own heart a few times, and then God begins to harden his heart for him, which is another warning. When God speaks, listen. You don't realize what you're playing with whenever you say no to God. Let your heart, like Greg said earlier, be soft in a heart of flesh and to be tender and not calloused. We callous our hearts with disobedience. We tender our heart with obedience. So let your hearts not be hardened. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and with each plague, he got more and more angry at God. I can just imagine Pharaoh in the palace. The, the God Ra that he worshipped couldn't answer him. The plethora of other gods in his religion couldn't fix this problem. He was praying, he was burning incense, he was bringing in his priest. Nobody had an answer because there is only one God <laughs> and he is most powerful and he is absolutely holy and there is none like him and there is no one to protect you from him if you turn away from him. So, so Moses, he's in between nine and 10. After nine, Moses is, is with God's people and, 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 and they're praying and, and they're searching and, and God speaks again and he says, listen, this is what I need you to do. I'm gonna give you some instructions and some guidelines before this next plague comes because 10 is coming. That don't mean a whole lot to you because you're not a Hebrew. Anybody in here a Hebrew? Anybody in here Jewish? Man, I wanna shake your hand, hug your neck if you are. All right. Okay, you're all Gentiles, just like me. 10 for the Jewish mind was more than a numerical value. It, was a, it meant a number, but it also meant complete. The number 10 is the Hebrew uh, number that is defined by completion. God is completing his wrath on Egypt. And so in between, he says to Moses and Aaron, gather the people, and this is what you need to do. I'm about to, to send this last plague that is absolutely going to devastate the entire land. And it's super important that you hear this because if you don't hear and do this, you might fall into the same condemnation as Egypt will. Now, they, they had to deal with the plagues around them that were before. But this plague is the loss of the firstborn. There is going to be a destroying spirit who comes over the land and he will take the life of the firstborn of every living creature. And God says, if you don't hear me, Hebrews, you'll be caught in this same thing. But this is what you need to do. You need to take a, a lamb without blemish. No sickness, no illness, no, I mean, spotless lamb. God was strict about that. Why? Because it's the lamb 
that is the, the type of Christ in this story. It's not just something that I say or me and Greg and Eli talk about in a 321 meeting and we come up and say, yeah, let's tell, tell them about the lamb and we just make them think it's... No, John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 29, and in one of the following verses, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. John the Revelator writes and says that Jesus is the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Every Lamb that was spoken of in the Old Testament Scripture is the typology of Jesus because it means humility and meekness and easily led in Jesus. Jesus is the lamb that has gone before her shearers and he is mute, doesn't speak. Isaiah chapter 53. This is speaking of Jesus. And so he says, take this lamb, pure and spotless, holy, holy, holy. And you, you this, is, this is fixing to get gross, okay? Y'all still with me? This is fixing to get gross. Cuts the neck, bleeds the lamb out takes the blood. There's more to do with the lamb. They're going to portion it out. They're going to cook it and they're going to eat it. But take the blood and paint it on the doorpost of your home. And that will be the sign to the destroying spirit that comes over to go back to that main verse. That uh Exodus 12, 13. The blood shall be a token upon the house where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. I'm gonna, that's going to be what signifies it, the blood of the lamb. They're still away from some points that I think are to come is that whenever we surrender ourselves to Jesus and allow Jesus to be our Savior, Master, and Lord, in, in symbol or in metaphor, we're taking his blood and we're painting the doorposts of our heart so that the destroying spirit doesn't come and take our life. Well, what, is that, what does that mean? It means, it means you're not gonna go to hell. <laughs> Isn't that good news? Man, y'all had a, today's hump day. Y'all okay? I know you're tired, but this is some good news. This is extremely important. The Passover lamb was given and instructed between the plagues of darkness and the firstborn death. And some takeaways from that is that the, the Jesus is our savior from the plagues. That Jesus is the savior who steps in between the plagues of life. That Jesus is the only one that can protect us from the coming plague, which is hell. And so how do we see Jesus as our Passover lamb? Well, first we see that Jesus was slain for us. It was instructed Get a lamb. They were told, take the life of this lamb. Why take the life of the lamb? How many animal lovers do we have in here? Yeah, man, y'all love some animals, don't you? Y'all love animals more than Peter loves animals, right? Can you just imagine the instructions here 
of taking a life. If you, if you go in your garden and you, you pluck, off, pluck off a few cucumbers and get some tomatoes and you don't feel quite as, quite as strange about taking life from a plant, but taking life from an animal, it's, it's, it's something to it. Never forget the first time I, I killed a deer. I'm a grown man. And I think to myself, when, when I pulled the trigger and that deer hit the ground, even though I was a grown man, there was a realization right then that hit me that says, you just took the breath out of something that was alive. Now, I've killed a lot of deer since then. And they taste good. And I don't quite feel that way much anymore. But that first time, it was just like, hmm, there's something to that. They're instructed to take the life because the lamb was to be slain. <laughs> Jesus is, is the lamb of God, and Jesus told us in John chapter 10 that he laid down his life as a sacrifice. Sometimes we, we, we used to sing a hymn a long time ago that, that Jesus' blood was spilt. How many of you guys ever remember the blood that is spilt? Jesus' blood was not spilt. To spill refers to an accident. Jesus' blood was shed because it was the purpose and plan of God. It was so much the plan of God that God had been preparing all of eternity in the beginning, showing even in Genesis chapter 3 to where he took an animal's life. He took the life and took the skin of that animal and clothed Adam and Eve in the garden. How do, how do we see Jesus as our Passover lamb is to know that the Father with great intention, planned through all eternity, and Jesus is not outside of that plan as three in one. He has, in the beginning, made the decision that his life would be slain for us. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 through 11. Notice what these verses say. Surely he, Jesus, this is a prophecy 700 years before Jesus was born, bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem. We saw him, we appreciated him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Just keep rolling through the verses and we'll read on through. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Those two words referring to how we've lived in defiance of God. Transgression and iniquity are their own purpose. It's not double talk, but we don't have time for that. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. He is slain. As a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison to judgment. This is all prophecy. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. Was he stricken? And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had no, done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Still more prophecy. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. 
You remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is, it is an example of showing the humility of the flesh that yields itself to the power of one who has ultimate control, the Father, to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when, he, uh, when, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I think we've got one more verse, verse 11. And he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus is the lamb that was slain for us. Small, meek, humble. A lamb is a, is a youth sheep. The, the, the plague was a destroyer of a firstborn, which typically a firstborn was an offering that was given in the Levitical system. Got a couple more things I'm going to throw at you and go through those real quick. Jesus' blood covers us. And I want to make sure that I put this in air quotes, covers us. I remember hearing a story of a church planner years ago who was talking about the blood of Jesus covering us, and he told that to a group that he was with that was very unchurched, didn't know a whole lot about Christian lingo, and he said, you've got to, have the, you, you've got to be washed in the blood of Jesus. And a dude stood up and he said, you ain't washing me in no animal's blood. Sometimes we can misunderstand this. Literally, then and there, they were to take the blood of the lamb and literally paint the doorpost. Literally, in the Old Testament, uh, Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, the priest would kill the offering and take the blood of the offering and sprinkle it over the altar and sprinkle it over the priest and sprinkle it over the people, and they were literally covered with the blood of that sacrifice for us. Aren't you glad you live in the age of grace? <laughs> to where Jesus' blood is not physically something that we're painted with, but more in a metaphorical, spiritual sense. We're painted with, we're covered with. You see, Jesus is typified in the lamb that his blood covers us, and that's something that we should want because it's by his blood and only his blood whereby we find life. Leviticus 17, 11 teaches us that the only way that there is life is if it's found in the blood. That's more than just a medical, practical, physical thing. You guys remember how, what prayer, was it George Washington Probably should have done more study on this point. But one of our presidents died because he was bled to death. Was it Washington? Who? Yeah, Washington. And, and so, so, so back in that day, they thought the way to get rid of sicknesses and fevers, they, they progressed to, to where they were a whole lot more scientific and they just put leeches on you to suck out the blood. But they, they would bleed you. If they'd only looked to Le Leviticus 17, 11, See where there's, there's life in the, in the blood. More than just spiritual, but, but practical. But then we find in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that it is by the shedding of blood that there is remission or forgiveness of sin. But this is the thing. It can't be somebody else's blood. 
It can be your blood, your husband, your wife may love you so much, your mom, your dad, your children, your best friend, they may step in front of you and take a bullet for you, and man, how awesome would that be to have somebody love you that much? But only Jesus' blood can offer forgiveness to give what we call Another big churchy word, atonement, to make us at one with Jesus. His blood makes us one with God in reconciling that relationship. No other blood can do that. Now, what would have happened if in this day they got everything right except for, well, they ain't got a lamb, but I got a rabbit. I don't have a lamb, I got a goat. I don't have a lamb, but I got a bull. The, the, the latter sacrifices that I talked about was a part of the political system, and it was permitted, but it wasn't permitted here by direct order. It had to be something specific. It had to be the blood of one in particular, and that being the blood of the lamb. You see, the the way Jesus' blood covers us is when we turn from our sins and we receive his sacrifice. That's what it means for us now. We believe that Jesus died on a cross. We confess it with our mouth. We believe that he was buried. We confess it with our mouth. We believe that he rose from the dead. We confess it with our mouth and we choose to follow him with our life. I'm, I'm, I'm very well persuaded that some people profess but don't possess. A mouth can say anything, don't, don't get me wrong, but Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, when it says confess, it means to agree with God, and it means more than just the mouth. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's got to be a heart conversion before there's a mouth utterance, but when there's a mouth utterance, it... it it reflects that there should be something happening in the heart. And so for us, it is to, Jesus, I believe you died, buried, and rose from the dead, and that sacrifice is enough to forgive my sin, no matter what my sin is, no matter what your sin is. You say, Andy, you don't know what I've done. I don't have to know what you've done when I know what he's done, and what he's done will cover anything anybody has ever done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. Jesus' sacrifice is enough. The third thing, Jesus is offered to us. If you go back to, to verse 8 in chapter 12, you'll see it says, And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire, and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. A couple of years ago, we had Joshua Turnell here who was with Jews for Jesus, and he did a Sadar meal. You might have been here for that. The Sadar meal has all of those elements on it of this Passover meal. The bitterness because of the bitterness of persecution that they were in. So many other elements we don't have time to talk about. But it was unique in that they were to take the blood and paint the doorpost. But there's a lamb, and you eat it. How many of you guys are hungry? I ain't even had supper yet. Man, I'm thinking about it. He said, eat it. Don't leave nothing left. It's important. How does that show us Jesus? Y'all remember that time? Jesus, man, he's a trip. 
Y'all remember that time in John chapter 6, verse 52 through 56, to where Jesus is talking to the crowd? He's already got them on edge. I love the way Jesus does that, getting folks on edge. And he's done, he's done brought them a lot. He, he, he uh, multiplied the fishes and loaves. He's done so many things at this point, but man, they're, they're bait and hook. The crowd is thick. And Jesus is getting ready to thin the crowd out. Because Jesus is going to say some stuff people can't handle. They don't understand it. With the history that they had as Jews, because he's speaking to the Jews, they should have got this, but they didn't get it. And the Jews, therefore, strove among themselves. They're fighting, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? They just, he just multiplied the fish and loaf, right? Jesus said to them, verily, verily, or of a truth I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What if I were to say to you, the only way you can be a member of Embrace Church Take a bite. <laughs> you would be like, freak, I'm going somewhere else. And if I were you, I'd say the same thing. But Jesus has got a lot of history in what he's saying here. He, he's, he's showing them that this is, this, he is the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, between the plagues, sacrifice for you. He goes on and says, whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life and I will raise him up in the last day. He says some other things, but we'll stop there. He is offered to us. What we do with it now, because he instituted it later in Matthew chapter 26, he reaffirmed it through the writings of Paul to the church at Corinth. We take the unleavened bread and we take the juice and we, we call it the Lord's Supper or communion and we commemorate and we remember his broken body for us, not bones but flesh and his blood that was shed and we take that together in remembrance of this sacrifice. There are certain denominations that believe when you take that, literally the juice and the bread turns into the literal physical blood and body of Jesus when you take it. I don't believe that. But some Christians do believe that. I believe, again, it's metaphorical, right? It's a symbol. But then the last thing, and we're getting ready to finish this up. Thank you all for letting me preach to you tonight. Jesus is ready now for us. Verse 11, this is how we see Jesus in the Passover lamb. And thus shall ye eat it. <laughs> Man, don't you love the King James Version? <laughs> some of y'all just don't get this in the other versions you're getting now. He says, with your loins girded. Thank you, King James. <laughs> they did that when he was ready to run or they, they was ready to go on a mission or they was, they girded up. So I like girding. Your, <laughs> your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand. It's how they eat in supper now. You shall eat it in haste. I ain't never got no problem with that. It is the Lord's Passover. It's ready for you. So this is the backside of this. You should be ready for him, right? It's ready for us. We should be ready for him. He is the sacrifice. You ought to do something with that sacrifice. A lot of times Christians believe that salvation is a conclusion. Salvation is not a conclusion. Salvation is a catalyst. Salvation is where it starts. What is salvation? It means to trust in Jesus and be rescued from our sin and hell. 
and I am saved, I am rescued for a purpose, and that is now to gird up my loins, hallelujah, and have my shoes on my feet and my staff in my hand, and I'm going to eat this with haste because there's somewhere to go and there is something to do. What is that somewhere to go and something to do? To leave a place of captivity and walk into a place of freedom. To leave bondage and find myself in a land of liberty. See, Jesus is that, that Passover lamb. But what do you do with the Passover lamb? Do you guys see Jesus in the book of Exodus? Man, there's thousands of other examples we could have used, but this is one that the Jews still celebrate and Christians do on one of our major holidays. You know what it is? Easter. What do you do with this? He is the lamb. He is your sacrifice. He can be your savior. He is the one who lives inside of you. He is the one who will go with you. He is the one who will never leave you or forsake you because it took that sacrifice. Nobody else could do it. Do not try to find salvation in any other way. Your work won't do it. The deepest and best loves you would find on this planet can't rescue you from the mess you've made. Some of y'all are still waiting on that guy to do it or that girl to show up or that thing to come in. If I just had enough money, if people just liked me a little bit more, if I was just more educated or smarter, if I could do it the way they do it, <laughs> when, when we're in heaven for a million years, the constant theme will still be Jesus, only Jesus, always Jesus. The only thing that can help us is Jesus. The only thing that can keep us is Jesus. The only way is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Try to do it another way, dummy. You'll see. But if you trust Jesus, he's your lamb, he's offered. Receive him. If you haven't received him, receive him. If you've received him in the past, live in him. If you would bow your heads with me for just a moment. Father, we are so grateful. We are unworthy of the sacrifice of Jesus, but how you have preached the story over and over I, I don't know how many times I heard the gospel before I received it, Lord. But yet you were patient and you exampled it and you pointed it out and every time the sun rose, it showed me the resurrection. Every time it set, it showed me the crucifixion. And God, tonight you show us Jesus in the Old Testament through the lamb that was sacrificed. Thank you that he is my lamb. to take away my sin, to bring me into a sheepfold that otherwise I could not be a part of. Jesus, we love you and we are grateful for you. Continue to teach us, Lord. Continue to show us who you are in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, 
and every day here. In Jesus' name, amen.